Okay, everyone, welcome to Doctorly Unhinged. Today, this is the unscripted version of us. Uh, we have no plans, essentially, on what we're going to say. Maybe a little bit of a skeleton so we don't go completely chaotic, but we just talk about our opinions here. There's, of course, a little bit of our scientific background mixed into our opinions, but we will be talking about some some crazy stuff coming into 2023 this year. What do we want to start with? Okay, first, starting out, um, welcome, everybody, because uh, you are all the absolute best. Join our Facebook community if possible. That's my only disclaimer for this today. And now we're going to jump into topic number one of the day, which is the clean at Sephora lawsuit. Yes. So this is uh, something I know virtually nothing about. Uh, as far as like headlines go, current events, often I'm out of touch. So I'm going to let Dr. Shaw fill us in here and we'll kind of dive into this. All right. We'll give you the background. So Basically, uh, according to beautypackaging.com, which is actually a really good website, a class action complaint requesting a jury trial was recently filed in New York against Sephora USA, which is owned by LVMH, alleging that a number of cosmetic products tagged clean at Sephora are loaded with synthetic ingredients, including some known to cause skin irritation or allergic reactions. What's your immediate reaction to that? Okay, my immediate reaction is, wait, did you, we just talked about this. And... So this is like the ongoing problem with clean beauty is the idea that clean is always entirely safe is completely debunked. Like it, there's no merit to that whatsoever. And then it makes me kind of laugh inside because again, they're just trying to qualify and define something that has no definition yet. And if that, if that actually gets defined, that may be beneficial for everybody. Right. If they came out with a FDA regulated version of what clean means, I think it would clean up the industry. Was that a good pun? No. Okay. It's terrible. So, so no, I think ultimately <laughs> that the, the biggest problem is clean is undefined. And this has been the biggest complaint by dermatologists since clean has been introduced. It's a marketing term, right? And it's used as a marketing term at Sephora also, right? They have the, the green symbol on their products. And if it meets certain ingredient requirements that are set by Sephora, then you earn this label of clean at Sephora. And then when you get to market your product as clean at Sephora... The consumers believe that they're safer for your skin or for your body in general, and it leads to more sales. And so essentially it's used as a marketing term, but it was really Sephora, you know, I don't know where it started at Sephora, but essentially trying to clean up the industry because it's actually true that big companies like Sephora, like for example, this is completely off topic, but for example, when Coca-Cola goes into different territories, they pull from the local water supply. And as a result of doing that, it forces the local communities to improve the quality of their water because otherwise Coca-Cola won't build plants in those towns. And so sometimes it's actually industry that actually cleans up a lot of what's happening that's negative, right? So if Sephora says, hey, these are our standards, you need to have these standards to meet the clean at Sephora, Sometimes that does force skincare brands to be more accountable for their ingredients. That being said, what's on this clean at Sephora list is really up to them. And there are a lot of ingredients that are considered not clean that most dermatologists would consider to be very safe. So, and that's actually a part of a bigger picture and bigger scale thing, I think. Um, you know, I think governmentally, we see this largely coming through the EU, at least on a very public facing level, where ingredients are very, very, in my opinion, just very quick to get banned. Um, 
I think the amount of evidence required to ban some of these ingredients is like relatively low. And then again, on the smaller commercial scale, yeah, not only do we see perhaps Sephora defining the industry and again, not in an entirely negative way. I think there's a lot of positive coming through this, both in terms of product safety and then even environmentally. Um, but I'm not sure. It, I'm actually very certain it doesn't always warrant it. Um, but again, I don't think it's always a negative thing. Right. And so I think what ends up happening is that, you know, clean is suddenly correlated to safe, which means that if it's not marked as clean, that it's automatically marked as not safe. And it really depends on who's creating these rules and what falls under these rules. And I think that that's why they got sued, right? Is they, they created this idea that, hey, we have clean at Sephora. And then these people come along and they say, well, this isn't clean by my standards of what I think is clean, right? So it's almost like they got out cleaned by this <laughs> lawsuit, right? So the, the people in the lawsuit are saying, well, you know, ultimately clean means to us that um, it does not contain ingredients that have impurities, unnecessary or harmful components. It doesn't have synthetic chemicals. It avoids potentially harmful ingredients, which again is like such like a, a broad term, right? Is like, you know, what is potentially harmful? Like what, you know, what's safe for me? Like what I'm not allergic to, you, you may be allergic to, right? So like nothing is going to be fully safe for everybody, right? And so when you, when you create a, like a term it makes that term a target in a lot of ways, right? Like if you say this is hypoallergenic, right? Versus just saying, you know, something more obscure, you sort of assume that it's not going to produce allergy in you. And then when it does produce allergy in you, you're like, well, this wasn't hypoallergenic at all, but it's hypoallergenic for most people. And so I think anytime you create a term, it almost becomes a target for people to say, well, that's not actually true. And so I think they kind of expose themselves to this scrutiny from the community and now they end up with this lawsuit and I don't know where it will go, but I think it, it forces the industry and us to look at clean and say like, let's either really define it, which I actually think would be a good thing if we could really define what clean means and come mm -hmm. up with like sort of a general consensus, either from a legal perspective or like, like from a Durham perspective or like whoever's creating these rules, create the actual like, what does it mean to be clean or scrap the term altogether? So, okay, I think that's, again, I guess I, my question to you there is if clean had a defined, if, if it was well-defined, if it had some legal parameters around it, like a lot of, I think what we as doctors are familiar with, like, would you embrace the term, not just accept the term, but would you embrace it and recommend it potentially? And obviously that would depend on what the uh, definition, where that fell. But because I, I, I think I could see myself getting on board with it depending on what they decided to exclude yeah i mean i think that it de again it depends on what your values are right like when you're when you're recommending skincare to me like clean would mean low allergenic potential right mm -hmm. low to cause like issues at the level of the skin right because that's what we're treating so things that cause allergy i would say like let's try to avoid things that are very high on that risk of allergy list but then like your definition may be different of like what you define as clean because that's even the same thing. Like if I see something that says dermatologist recommended on it, do I automatically think to myself like, well, some other dermatologist recommended it? Because sometimes I pick up those products and I go, I would never recommend this. Mm -hmm. So I don't know which dermatologist recommended this. So I, I think that even 
even then, um, there would need to be some type of criteria to show that the ingredients were harmful to a good percentage of people. I don't know what threshold that number would be. And then maybe I would say, well, okay, this is a good definition of clean. But I think, again, like, you know, there may be ingredients that come on later that we say, okay, well, let's say, for example, you know, 10 years ago, they decided to say parabens aren't clean. Mm-hmm. Like all derms agreed on this. And then they said, well, now we're going to introduce methylchloroisothiazolinone, which then became a very common allergen in skincare products. And then we have to say, well, okay, now we're going to add this ingredient to that list of avoid ingredients. So I think that it just gets kind of convoluted. I, I would almost prefer that we like scrap the term altogether, but I mean, ultimately, I think that either those are going to be a legal definition that everybody has to abide by, in which case then you just don't use the term, right? Like, so if they came up with a legal definition of it, this is what clean means. And if you follow this list of ingredients or you avoid this list of ingredients, then your products can be considered clean. And if you don't follow this list of ingredients, then you can't write clean on it, right? So then Mm -hmm. I think then it's up to the brands to decide whether they want the clean designation or they don't. So even taking a step back from there too, it's like, okay, so if we were to design, if we were going to define clean beauty, if we were going to build that out, like, so from you, I've already heard, okay, it would be low on the allergenicity scale, right? Which is very difficult. My, my, my thing with allergens, like, yes, there are certainly allergens that are more common, obviously, as a dermatologist it's built into us that that's a paramount problem for the skin is allergenicity. But also... I mean, anything can be an allergen. And we see this over and over and over again. Even though some things are minimally allergenic, some people will develop an allergy. And then if that clean clean label is on that product and somebody gets an allergy, is there a liability associated with it? And then I guess I would also introduce if allergenicity is going to be a mark of what clean beauty is defined as, is irritancy potential. Like, Because I think also in this, um, this uh, headline or this article that you kind of pulled up, it wasn't just allergenic it was i think irritating was something you may have also said yeah harmful physical harm and irritation but then we get to the concept okay so are we also going to have to include minimally irritating ingredients because that excludes purposefully irritating ingredients like exfoliants or retinoids things that have a very deliberate functional role but by by virtue of what they do they can be irritating so even in this lawsuit that's proposed I think they're trying to build a definition that's going to be so exclusive, (laughs) you're going to have a type of skincare product line that may not be very effective inherently. Well, that, and that's a good point also, but let me ask you this, because let's say we, you and I are two dermatologists and we're talking to each other right now. Do you think you and I could even come to consensus on what it means to be clean? I don't know because we, uh, I mean, from years of talking, I know we have different opinions. I think we could find common ground and get to a place where like, okay, this is acceptable. This is not. But I do believe that, you know, especially if we were the consumer, we would disagree with whatever that consensus was. We'd find something that we disagree with. So two people who are close (laughs) in opinion and knowledge base can't agree on this. Um, I think it would be difficult for any anybody to come to come to something that everyone or at least most people would even agree upon. And uh, let me ask you this, because like I have certain ingredients that I try to avoid in my skincare products when possible. Are there any ingredients that you actually avoid personally? 
Ooh, entirely. So that's interesting. Like, would there be anything on your list of ingredients to avoid? Because I've never heard you actually say like, I don't use this or I would avoid this. Never. Yeah. Never statements are never and always statements are very rare for me because mm -hmm. I find that a lot of times the ingredient can be used purposefully, deliberately, um, or for the other right person, like it's not problematic and collectively in the body of the ingredient list, it's, it's acceptable. So whew, never, never, ever. I have no, I'm allergic to something. I don't think I know what it is yet, but once I find that, that would be a personal no. So you, but your list is everything is clean. Clean by Luke Maxfield is, is, a, is everything. <laughs> everything <laughs> falls under that category. So that, this is, this is essentially the problem, right? Is that the target clean is just too assailable by the public. Mm. And I think the use of it at all would fall under scrutiny by like, but you would find somebody who would not be happy with the definition. And so I, w I would be in favor of scrapping it all together. But I do think that, you know, companies like Sephora do their best to try to clean up industries. I'm not trying to use the word clean, like tongue in cheek right now. I, I'm like really trying to, they, they do it to try to, you know, create some sense of um, transparency across the industry and try to hold companies accountable. But at the same time, I think that anytime you create a target like that, it becomes very difficult for everyone to agree upon it. And so, you know, I don't think that actually warrants a lawsuit because I think they define what it meant to them. Like these are the ingredients we specifically avoid at Clean at Sephora. So I don't think it was, I don't think they just said clean and then didn't define it any further. I think they did their best to define what clean meant to them. And then they held products to that standard before giving them that seal of approval. But again, like, you know, I think that the term clean is going to continue to be under attack by people. So let's talk about Vaseline hacks because it's the time <laughs> of the year where Vaseline becomes right by my side. Vaseline or any ointment. So, you know, CeraVe healing ointment. Actually, have you tried the Cetaphil healing ointment? Mm -mm. Was that a new release? Yeah. Yeah. Cetaphil came out of the healing ointment, I think, last year. And it's actually pretty good. Um, no one ever talks about it, mm -hmm. but it's not bad. It's not bad. But specifically, you know, we're talking about our ointment products here. But, um, you know, some hacks that I've been seeing online. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this was my own. Like, I just I want your opinion on this, actually, Dr. Maxfield. I heard that if you put a little bit of Vaseline on your neck like this here, you apply it to your neck and then you spray your cologne there that it would make your cologne last longer. What are your thoughts on that? Ooh, last longer. Not where I thought you were going with that. Um, my, I mean, off the bat, I think it's actually feasible and reasonable because uh, part of why I would assume some of the fragrance is lost is because of either absorption or physically being removed. I mean, obviously it's um, aromatic. And so I think it, what's that word I'm looking for? You know, we're saying like, pfft. I don't know, but it, it like, I think it just, this does dissipate into the air in some sense, Vaporizes. but I think vaporize. Nah, that's not it, but that's okay. 20 minutes. Evaporates. I'll, no, it's uh, it's like combustible, but it's not combustible. We've talked about this before in the setting of uh, irritating ingredients, like why, why oh, fragrance um, is inherently irritating. Volatile. volatile. That's it. So I think part of that from the volatility. And then again, it diffusing into the air is why it, goes away but again if it's not absorbing into the skin whatever water-based components there are lipid soluble components i could see that being a reasonable argument the second thing too 
is, let's say some of it's removed from sweat just by washing it off the skin. If you put it Vaseline, could it decrease sweat reaching the surface of the skin to wash away the fragrance? I think that's also plausible to some extent. So I'm, I'll buy in that. I'll buy that. All right. So I think that it makes sense why it would work. So I, I'm not against it. I saw the hack on TikTok. I thought about it. I agree that it could potentially be true. And then I Durham doctor approved it. But uh, <laughs> the, the next thing is, is using Vaseline um, as an eye cream. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Um, so I have some nice anecdote for this too. So I've, you, of course, were someone who pioneered the vi- Vaseline eye cream craze. And the benefits of it is it is minimally irritating. Uh, it is minimally allergenic on an area where the skin is very sensitive. It also is the most effectively occlusant for locking in water. So for people who are really trying to keep hydrated lids then this is something that would work very well for them, right? So functionally makes sense. Um, anecdotally, uh, so my wife, she uh, she kind of lived your life for like the last month. She had very irritated eyes. I don't know what you're doing to my family, but like me and my allergic reaction and now my wife with her eyelids. <laughs> well, there you go. Do you know what, she, what caused it or no? Uh, no. Mm. But uh, Vaseline, that in a comp- she was using Vaseline pretty exclusively for a while. And then she also used this... Um, other product that's not yet to hit the market and it worked that worked really well for her as well but so for her like vaseline was a savior for that sensitive skin and so i i love that as a hack there plus it's cheap yeah cheap widely available low allergenic potential high moisturizing ability or at least the prevention of transepidermal water loss one of the things you know i would you know caution people about and the thing is okay so milia which you know we'll define really quickly are these little balls of keratin that get trapped underneath the skin they're like these white balls that get trapped underneath the skin and there's not really a lot of data on what causes these by any capacity but there's the (laughs) thought that occlusive ingredients which would make sense ingredients that don't allow your skin to exfoliate itself cause these keratin balls to then get trapped underneath the skin and so especially this area being an area that's prone to milia in general, it is potent, it is a, there is a potential that Vaseline could contribute to milia, though there is no scientific evidence that it does. Now, okay, I, I'll buy that too. Um, now, with that being said, it's, too, it's, not, it's supposed to not be comedogenic as far as the studies go, which is interesting, but I agree with everything you just said. The other thing too, I've heard someone say from, I did not expect them to say this, but that you shouldn't use it or be cautious around the eyes. Um, any thoughts or reasons why you might consider that? Just just because of the milia. Purely because of milia, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no like, like you can get Vaseline on the eyeball without any problem at all. In fact, I may even recommend it to put Vaseline on your eyeballs. Like, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Who knows? We use, uh, what is it for eye shields for surgery sometimes? Like we do surgery So we use like the antibiotic ointment, but that has petrolatum in it. Yeah. It's it's petrolatum, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah. So I, I, I actually have no issue with, you know, keeping Vaseline around your eyeballs. Um, as long as you, I just be cautious, right? Because, you know, you, if you are prone to milia, then you're going to be sad at me if that happens, right? That's fair. Um, That's fair. So, okay. I just don't like to get blamed for anything. Hmm. Um, all right. So next up, let's talk about baby Botox. B- 
baby what botox. is baby botox so from my understanding again i think this is a term like i don't know if people really use it maybe professionals do use it but it's not something i'd ever heard of before but it's a small amount uh, I, I really think of it as just like a way to personalize the outcome but it's a small amount of botox less than like would traditionally be used when treating a certain area unless i've got that completely wrong yeah no just using a less right um ultimately the idea of baby botox without getting crazy is that you're using less botox and so it allows for like a more natural appearance because you're going to still get some movement some wrinkling some movement that allows it such that you're not as frozen looking and um it's you know it's become popular because i think people some people don't want the frozen look and some people feel that being too frozen at a young age can have detrimental side effects well i think anecdotally too but again i still think the idea of competitive inhibition and working out the receptor site then in that case is like still true that you could get a gradient of response Mm -hmm. and because even with our nerve signal firing like it takes energy to move the nerves and it would take more of that to get that to fire and to overcome that inhibition so i think the gradient thing works and then anecdotally i think i've seen that work in real life too where if you use small amount of units because you can you can kind of personalize it for each person where if some people like to be frozen right naturally it would take more units than if you would want someone just have softened movement perhaps it's not recruiting all of the muscle fibers perhaps it just recruits some portions of it and that's accounting for the decreased movement but i think um i think it's i think it makes sense and i think it actually works in the way that it's supposed to now the safety side of it i think that's a whole nother a whole nother thing but uh expectations i think it would deliver Well, the thing is, you know, have you noticed, I mean, I feel like a lot of times I will like specifically under treat people with Botox and I still think that they are completely frozen in the areas that I've treated them in. Does that make sense? Like they'll still have movement, but it's in areas that I didn't treat at all, even if I'm under treating. Does that make sense? Like, I I almost feel like I don't ever see it such that the movement is just less movement. Oh, this is a great example. So I know for those of you who aren't in the pod, who are like just listening to the auto here, you're going to be remiss, but I actually just got Botox three weeks ago. So I'm in the sweet spot where it's it's kicked in three, four weeks ago, right? All right. So let's see your movement then. Which I think that you have movement of your eyebrows, but I would argue that you don't have movement of the upper forehead at all. You say I've got none. Okay. See, that's interesting. Yeah. So I think that you undertreated, but you just didn't treat certain areas in your undertreatment. Not that you have less movement. I mean, I just, that's just been my experience. And that's why I sort of wondered about whether or not like there's sort of like an all or none sort of response that was occurring in this capacity. But I mean, regardless, I mean, we could try to see if there's any studies on this, but my question, I guess, is with, with using less Botox and, you know, I I would actually recommend maybe not less, but maybe less often is sort of my thought process too, if you want to maintain more of that natural movement. And, um, one of the concerns is atrophy. So I want to talk a little bit about atrophy from Botox. Do you think it's a real thing? Yeah, absolutely. And not also not sure if I agree with the less often thing. This, I think you're, uh, I think a person's just going to have a longer period where they have full movement. Right. So I, I have not gotten Botox in over a year. 
mm-hmm. and I have full movement. Um, but that being said, there is, even if you use it less often, you mm-hmm. are going to, because of the atrophy, right? Because, so just to give you an idea, define atrophy is that the muscles um, thin out or they become less strong. That happens anytime you have disuse of any muscle. So if you cast your arm, if you are in a wheelchair for a month, like any area that you're not working out or not getting pressure on or not, you know, moving a workload with, you are going to get atrophy of that muscle is going to weaken with time. Like there's no doubt about it. And there's been tons of studies to show that Botox does in fact cause atrophy of your facial muscles in areas that it's injected. So that's not a topic for debate. But um, my thought is that if you are using it, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, you've now paralyzed the muscles for three months. The following three months, are your muscles not going to be weaker such that it's leaving less etched in lines than before? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So So you still have the movement. You still have full movement, but it's weaker movement. So, oh, I see. So that's okay. I see. So that's how you're saying with the breaks in between, even though you don't actually have any active product, you would still have benefits from it as those muscles are starting to exercise. Just as like reconditioning for someone who's coming into PT after a hospital stay. Right. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it works. I mean, that's the same concept as to like why some of these dynamic lines can improve or static lines even might improve, um, even though they're already kind of present. So, okay, sure. Now, with that being said, though, if depending on your goal, like, aren't you just undoing what you've been trying to like, why, 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 why not just treat again? Like, are you kind of allowing your muscles to get stronger and reforming those static lines that were dynamic lines that you're trying to knock back? Well, it depends on like what effect you're trying to achieve, right? Personalized always. I like... (laughs) So my goal is to have full movement mm-hmm. with without wrinkles. So that's a difficult line to try to <laughs> to do, right? Because like we know that movement causes wrinkles, but I want movement because I like to show facial expressions. Mm-hmm. I like people to know when I'm happy. I like when people know that I'm mad. But at the same time, I don't want to get these etched in wrinkles. So my thought is my strategy, and it's been my strategy now for four years, is that I do <laughs> Botox like every nine months. And in that process, by using, still using, you know, your microneedling and your retinol in between and your sunscreen in between all this that I have weakened my muscles, but I still get my movement. And then once they get really, really strong again, and I start to get those etched in lines again, I, I zap them again. I paralyze them again. I cast my face again, essentially. I put my face in a cast with Botox mm-hmm. and then I start over again. And then I, I'm in this constant battle of atrophy to being strong again and then i (laughs) i injure my then i basically paralyze myself again and then i get you know so it's like this back and forth battle and my goal is that basically when i'm 100 Mm -hmm. i'll be at net neutral i'll still be in this battle my face is still in the battle of life what do you think about that so i think i actually inherently and unknowingly have done the same thing because i think both of us have a similar goal we like expression we think it adds like a, a nice representation of the energy that we all of us have I think it's, I love wrinkles on people, smile ones, especially, but 
Yeah, I've noticed I do the same thing. I think it came to a point like a month ago. I was shooting a oh, I was shooting a video where the whole video was me raising my eyebrow, which I like to do. It's a part of me. But as, as I was doing it for about an hour straight, I was like, man, this is getting out of control. <laughs> so I grabbed uh, somebody. We get, did the shots. But I think the same thing. I, I do think that at a point I noticed it becoming... Um, for me, I think it's the static lines that I want to prevent on my forehead. Exactly. And so yeah. I get to, I feel like those start to show up and then I'm like, okay, it's time. But I, obviously it's a little more haphazard with how I'm doing it. Right. Um, I think that, you know, some people like the frozen look. They don't want any movement. They don't want any static wrinkles. They don't want any dynamic wrinkles. And those people that, you know, you don't want to do the baby Botox. You want to treat it regular intervals every three or four months. And you want to be consistent about that. Now, I think other people prefer like maybe less Botox, maybe that baby Botox where you get some movement, but not full movement. And they want to do that every three months. And then I think there are people like me who are saying like, I want full movement most of the time. And then, but I don't want the static wrinkles. And so I try to like listen to my skin, you know, and I think that's what something what everyone should be doing is like listening to their skin and adapting their routine based on their skin. They start getting more hyperpigmentation. They introduce a hyperpigmentation product. You're getting more fine lines, wrinkles, you introduce a retinol product and you sort of go back and forth playing this game with your skin where it's like very individual to you. And I do that same thing with my cosmetic treatments where there's no sort of regular interval to it. I, I'm like you or one day I look in the mirror or I'm on video and I'm like, yeah, I'm starting to get these lines and they're looking worse and worse. And so I then will say, okay, now it's time to treat again. And um, I kind of go back and forth like that. That's that's my MO. But my, my, like, my question is, and like, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist by any means, is if you were to paralyze the muscles in your face forever, mm -hmm. would that change the way that you look? with time hmm so i guess the 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 extrapolation there is by weakening your muscles would it also change perhaps bone structure and maybe the rate of bone absorption even because i think obviously yes if your face atrophies and we know this like to get a more ovoid face you can inject the masseters and it will decrease the squareness of a person's perhaps profile so yes by atrophying the muscles you will get a changed profile in some sense it will change your face your face and then long term i'm like okay well what other long-term changes contribute to the aging face and it's bone resorption and fat pads moving and tendon weakness. So maybe like the tendon, but usually that's the eye tendon. So I'm not sure like that would have a really meaningful effect. Um, so I'd say beyond altering the perhaps jawline or where muscles actually contribute to the shape of your face, I'd say, I would actually say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't think the muscles that we generally inject with Botox, right? So the ones like the sort of upper face around the eyes, right? These are very like thin muscles. Um, and, and in the forehead, like if you put your finger on your forehead right now, and I, I will have everyone listening to the podcast do that right now, there's not much volume between your skin and your bone, right? There's not like a ton there, right? So it's so it's not like the muscles in your upper face are contributing to the shape of your face really in any real capacity. Whereas the lower face, right? Like if you feel your lower face, you do feel those those masseters on the angle of your jaw, those muscles there do give your face volume. And so by injecting those and paralyzing those over long periods of time, we do know that that changes the shape. 
to more of that like almond shape. And and there are a lot of people that want that that less rigid jawline, that less strong jawline. And so they will inject the masseter muscles to change the shape of the face. But I agree with you. I don't think injecting the upper face will over long periods of time um, really change the structure of your face. Yeah, that's it. What was the safety thing though you were worried about or had mentioned? Was there a safety thing why baby to- Botox might be better than grown-up Botox per se? It was really just more about like atrophy with time, whether mm-hmm. or not that, you know, atrophy would at, at some point cause an issue with the structure of your face. But no, there's no, you know, as far as we know, there, there's no real like long term. I mean, there's side effects of Botox, right? Like unintentional injection into areas you don't intend, right? So, you know, you your, your eyebrow drops, you get ptosis, you know, something like this where you're you know, you're, you know, you get this lazy eye looking area for, for, you know, that three months that it's in effect, you know, that, that would be an adverse side effect. Some people get headaches, um, mm-hmm. because it, you know, alters some of the blood vessel chemistry and also the, the muscles in the face. And so there are side effects to Botox, but I, you know, the long-term side effects of like, oh, well, you're injecting a poison, um, forever. Like there doesn't seem to be long-term systemic side effects in the sense that like outside of what it's doing in the local level of, of causing atrophy, there doesn't seem to be any long-term systemic side effects to Botox that I know of. Yeah, exactly. And I'm with you there. So, you know, and again, what I believe would be an insignificant change in the big picture of dosing between baby and adult Botox, as far as how it affects your whole body, I don't think it would make any difference whatsoever in terms of any untoward side effects beyond maybe anything local that is kind of expected or common with which would be with both. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that Botox, and we may have talked about this before, or maybe we just talked about this in general conversation, but do you think that injecting Botox in your face, if you're somebody who sweats a lot, mm-hmm. do you think that, have you noticed less sweating on your forehead when using Botox? Not really. I mean, I do, I know what, I mean, in theory, it certainly should, could, but I don't do it. Um, maybe I just don't do it frequently enough, but I've mm-hmm. really never noticed any decreased sweating from when I, you know, I injected my face versus, uh, when I don't plus never, certainly never experienced what they call compensatory hyperhidrosis where you inject an area affected with Botox and then you sweat more somewhere else on your body. That's definitely never been the case, mm-hmm. but then it's a matter of perhaps units. Right. And for those of you who don't know, you know, Botox is a treatment for excessive sweating or hyperhidrosis. And the same, the same neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, that causes muscle contraction is the same neurotransmitter that causes sweating from your acrine sweat glands. And so by inhibiting the release of that, it should have an effect on both where you both don't sweat and you are not able to move, but the acrine glands are a little bit higher up in the skin than the muscle is. The muscle is a little bit lower. So, I mean, you would have to get some degree of diffusion um, beyond the intended area in order for that to work. But I, I think theoretically it should help with people with excessive facial sweating, which is an issue that some people suffer with, especially people who wear makeup and, you know, end up sweating off a lot of their makeup. Yeah, that definitely is. I think it's a very... Uh, I think it's actually good you brought that up because I really do believe it could be beneficial for some people. I have to pay more attention to it personally now, but I think for the right person that it would be like a really nice, uh, in a sense, nice side effect, adverse event. It'd be really helpful. Right. Because I've heard of people using like antiperspirants on their faces for this reason and almost using Mm -hmm. antiperspirant as like a primer because they end up sweating off a lot of their foundation. And so this could be another thing that you could get like a twofer 
um, where you ultimately um, benefit from both side effects there. Um, all right, so let's wrap up this episode with a quick rapid fire. So I, I like to hit Dr. Maxfield with some rapid fire where I don't give him too much time to think about things. So, you know, real quick, rapid fire, Dr. Lee Unhinged, you ready? Yes, let's do it. All right, so what celebrity launch? You don't need to know anything about the products. I'm just going to ask you, what celebrity launch were you most excited about? Scarlett okay. Johansson, Kim Kardashian, Haley Bieber, Brad Pitt, Alicia Keys, or JLo. I don't think you've probably tried any of these products, but which one were you most excited about? Just purely by name recognition. Purely by name recognition, I, I'd go with Brad Pitt. You were most excited about Brad Pitt's skincare line? Yeah. Isn't it like definitely. $400 for like a serum? So you're you're Could now be. endorsing Brad Pitt's skincare line at this point. I'm more and so endorsing Brad Pitt and his appeal <laughs> to me because I think he's I think of Brad Pitt I think of Oceans, which is the Ocean series, one of my favorite movies of all time, and I kind of want to be that. I want to be like the classy club. white collar. Um, yeah, I don't want to be that. That has no appeal to me. I don't think I'm not. I'm not like okay. I'm, I'm not looking for like the Fight Club skincare line. I want the Ocean's Thirteen skincare line. Okay. Okay. What What if George Clooney came with a skincare line? Oh yeah, definitely. I want that. I want the George Clooney skincare line. So George Clooney, drop a skincare line. As if there's not enough skincare lines out there. Doctor Maxfield is looking for the George. Clooney skincare line. That's uh, that's pretty interesting. I I would say that of I've probably only tried the Haley Bieber line out of everything here, and was formulated uh, with one of my good friend dermatologists, and it's actually a pretty good line. So um, that's probably the one that I was most excited about. All right, favorite trend of 2022. Favorite skincare trend of 2022. Just overall, no list. Okay, it's. I'll, I'll actually name the top ten trends of 2022. Do that, and then you can tell one, me which one there. you liked the most. Okay, yeah. Number one was actually ranked ranked number one skincare trend of 2022. Believe it or not, retinol. Number two, graphic liner. It's basically like a way of putting on eyeliner. You probably don't know anything about that. Gua Sha was number three. Oof. SPF was number four. <laughs> DIY skincare was number five. Lip scrubs was number six. Ombre lips was number seven. Glass skin was number eight. And mm. hyaluronic acid and niacinamide for nine and 10. Which one are you most excited about? Wow. This is not the list I was expecting. See, this is what I wanted to hear it. Um, wow. Also, some of these things, I can't believe they're like, I would never have thought of them as trends because I guess even like retinol, it's like such a staple in skincare. I'm like, well, that's not a trend. That's like a way of skincare. It's a life, way you know? of life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, gosh, the gua sha one is painful though. Um, you know, ah, tough retinol. I mean, sunscreen, I'd go with, uh, I mean, obviously I'll go with the retinol. I think that one is going to be my top. I, I, and the reason is the reason is I, I have this thing with like effectiveness. I have this thing with effectiveness. I think it's a problem from growing up. I grew up in like a way where we use things kind of indiscriminately. I saw people wasting a lot of money and time on things that were promised to do a lot, but do nothing. And so I, and you'll see that I think, and maybe throughout like our career together and our career on our channels is like, if something's effective, I'll probably find some way to be on board with it. 
and just whether it requires being more judicious, more cautious, like a little bit safer or more aware. Um, because I'm a big fan of people getting the results that they're promised in a way. And I think retinol does deliver on a lot of levels, retinoids in particular. Um, but I think retinol lives in that space, especially when you're talking about the myriad of skincare ingredients. I think, you know, with our channel, we've always done skincare with deliberate purpose, right? Where we say, okay, well, we're either trying to maintain our health or improve a certain skin condition. We're presented with a problem. We solve it. I think there are certain people that are just like that, where they're presented with a problem and they, they solve it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I was actually listening to this thing. This is more of like on a personal life thing, but apparently when some people present you with their problems, they don't actually want an answer to the problem. They just want to be This is a news to you? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I guess I'm not that surprised, but I do tend to like, for example, when my wife presents me with a problem that's going on at work, I tend to say, well, like maybe you should do this, this, and this. And it's never the right answer. I realize, like every time I do it, it's like, no, like I'm not going to do that or you know, that's ridiculous type of thing. Um, uh-huh. And so, and then I saw this thing on TikTok where they were like, well, you know, some people don't want an ant. They don't want a solution. They just want to vent. Um, do you, have you experienced that? Yeah, man. This is like, this is premarital counseling 101. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually something. I well, let me ask you like... this then. Okay. Do you think, right? If some people just want to be heard, uh, is it appropriate mm-hmm. to ask that because i also heard that you should ask that but then i was like is that a rude thing to ask like if if you present hmm. me with a problem and i say hey do you want a solution to your problem or do you want to just vent would that be a rude pretense that's a great question i think so this is like doctorly relationship advice here but uh i think it's something you have to set the grounds for ahead of time so it's actually something i think my wife and my wife and i like talked about beforehand and so we're like aware of that um you know this is a thing and it's one of the things that we like greenlit that yeah you know i can ask that i don't think i ever do but <laughs> i think i have the freedom to where i'm like you know hey do you just need to get this off your chest you know and it's like yeah okay by all means it's probably wise to introduce that not in the middle of a venting session yeah <laughs> uh, because you don't want to be like well do you really want an answer because then that can be like patronizing or condescending to some extent i feel like but if there's a pretense that you really want to know the answer to before you proceed with how you respond to the conversation, then I think then that becomes acceptable in in that scenario. So, okay, well, you agree with that. That's totally unrelated. All right, so retinol, uh, best skincare trend of 2022, which was probably we did the most videos on retinol in 2022. Um, Maybe (laughs) we contributed to that trend to some extent. Uh, let's talk mm-hmm. about favorite trends that will dominate 2023, according to Vogue Sculpted Skin, hmm. um, which I don't know what that means. Skin Good Deep Health, which okay. I don't know what that means. More holistic treatments, Uh-oh. proactive prevention, bettering your barrier, laser mixing, more <laughs> inclusive education. IV drips for supercharged skin. Oof. Hardworking hybrids. So like ingredients that are like less single Mm. ingredient formulas. And the online dermatologist. That's number 10. Ooh, this is a bad list. There are some things on here I like hope don't take off. Like which one? Um, Okay, so the skin barrier thing I'm all for. I, I think like 
making sure the skin barrier is intact. We talk about that so much, like skin barrier health. And I think the more people are aware of that, the more balanced and deliberate they can be with their skincare routine altogether. I like the multi-use ingredient one because I'm a big fan of skinimalism. That was going to be mine for leading into the next year, like the one ingredient that does multiple things because it's, you know, I lead a hectic lifestyle. It's hard to imagine putting 10 single ingredients into a routine and making that work for me. So I think that's good too. The, um, the, the ones that I think are tough, like professionally, the online dermatology one is like, I have a big red flag for that one because, um, I, I'm a, I'm a proponent for telehealth. I'm a proponent for teledermatology. I'm, um, I think there's a use for it. And I think COVID really highlighted the accessibility problem. And it also showed where it could be useful. However, getting dozens of pictures throughout each month to every the year from people like what is this i just know that the actual diagnostic portion of teledermatology is horrible that's not accurate it wildly is inaccurate and there's a study showing that everyone touts is like a positive thing that 80 percent of the time um the diagnosis on telehealth matches up with what you'd see in person but my thought on that is that the converse is true it's that that's like a that's a bad stat like one out of five times you would actually be wrong. And then when you think about what that would do in terms of volume, let's say you see 50 patients a day on Teladerm, that means 10 or wait, that means let's go with a hundred. No, 10. That's <laughs> that means 10, like, you're right. Yeah. That's, that's like a huge portion of people that just got misdiagnosed. And it could be melanomas, which I think would very frequently be misdiagnosed in person. Like everything matters from like the 10 X zoom to the quality of the thing to the whole person in front of you as a, as a whole body and the skin is a canvas. Like, yeah, I think tele teloderm done wrong would be dangerous. Yeah. You know, teloderm, there exists a space for it, right? Actually, ultimately it's happening. It's there. It's here to stay. The question is, how can we improve upon it so that people mm -hmm. are actually being delivered high quality healthcare rather than just being basically commoditizing treatments, right? Because I think that's part of mm -hmm. what a lot of these tele telehealth services are doing right now is they're sort of commoditizing like acne treatments. They're like, hey, we're just going to send you this acne treatment and everybody's got acne or everyone who sends us pictures has acne and there's really no like thought process or there's no, you know, really holistic approach to that patient like you would at the office. And so I think it's going to be here. It's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And either we're part of the solution or we, um, we allow it to be sort of unchecked. And so I think that derms need to be part of the solution to this problem and, and, mm -hmm. and seeing like, you know, what safeguards we can put in place to make sure people are getting high quality care. But the truth is that people don't have access to dermatologists in this country and abroad. So there's a big healthcare shortage. There's people that can't afford to go see a dermatologist. Dermatologists are booked out for a long period of time. And so we do need to figure out a way to increase access in a way that's safe. And so I think that telehealth or telederm is a good place for basic things that can be treated online. So you know, whether it be acne or rosacea or hyperpigmentation or hair loss, those are, those are like four categories where I feel like if, if the right safeguards are in place and the right people are sort of operating the machine that you can get good high quality diagnoses in those areas and good high quality treatments in those areas sent off to those patients. But there needs to be something in effect where it says like, Hey, this is beyond what we can do. Um, or it's not safe at this 
to treat this or like if someone comes in with a mole that looks suspicious, they need to somehow be triaged to the right people to make sure that, hey, like this person was seen by telehealth or teledermatology and they need to see a dermatologist ASAP, right? So there's some way to like expedite these people through wait lists to say, hey, like that's actually a really suspicious mole. You need to go see a dermatologist or that's not acne. That's tuberous sclerosis like we showed in our video. Like you need to go see a dermatologist. So I think it needs to be done and the safeguards need to be put in place to make sure that people are treated in a safe way that, you know, they're getting the same health care that anyone else would get. And it's not like a lower quality of health care. Yeah, I just don't think there's I think for a lot of things like a, a big bulk of what we spend our day doing, it cannot replace it. I think but I, but I do agree with everything you said. I just I just I, my mind immediately goes to the areas fraught with danger. Um, the other the other the other thing on that list that really uh, like jumped at in a negative way was the IV drips for supercharged skin, and it's in, in a part because I've seen this done in a lot of other settings. A lot of who um, I don't know. I feel like limitless settings in different states. I wonder if it's a state regulated thing. I'm actually not sure where you get IV drips and it's kind of touted for like the hangover cure or supercharging before a workout or whatever. And I just feel that vitamins are so misused and misunderstood in the Western culture and here in America um, that this is going to be used indiscriminately. And it's just a complete marketing ploy for a way to now expand the IV parental water soluble vitamins and in, into the the skincare space. And I, I don't know, I, I'm, it's not welcome there in my mind. Um, it just doesn't, it's not rooted in physiology. And I think even objectively, um, quantitatively in terms of electrolytes, it doesn't make much sense. Right. You know, I think that, you know, IV drips and IV drip clinics and these post hangover clinics and even like concierge medicine of like people coming into hotel rooms with IV bags, like post hangover has become like very popular amongst mm. a certain demographic. And again, I, you know, I would agree not welcome in the skincare world <laughs> by us <laughs> by any means, unless there's like some good data that shows that, hey, like this is actually the best thing that you can do is get like IV B12, which I don't recommend, by the way. So don't say that I don't cut this up and say I said I to do it. But if there was some evidence that said like in this double blind placebo controlled trial, like IV vitamin B12 versus, you know, whatever, like is better than, you know, is better mm -hmm. for your skin, then I would say, okay, fine. But as of right now, there's no evidence to suggest that it's more of like a, it's like one of those like sort of pseudoscience um, wellness things that I, I think I hope doesn't take off in 2022, 2023. I mean, so I agree with you. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all so much for tuning in to Doctorly Unhinged. Make sure that you join us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join our Facebook community where we answer questions live. And uh, thank you for being part of the Doctorly family. Yeah, we're so excited to bring you into this and to bring this to you. Just love being a part of everyone's life during this journey. So just thank you again.